We use our phones for everything at this point, and I am absolutely guilty of that. I look up recipes on my phone. I meal plan on my phone. I use my GPS, even though I know where I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) But did you know that you can also use your phone for some sexy me time? Don't worry. Your fantasies are safe with Dipsy. Just don't forget to use your headphones. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time. Explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or even heat things up with a partner. For listeners of our show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash justbreakup. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash justbreakup dipsystories.com slash just break up. Welcome to Just Break Up, the podcast about love, heartbreak, and all the relationship advice you don't want to hear. My name is Sierra DeMolder. And I'm Sam Blackwell. And this week on Head and Heart Work Conversations, we're talking to author Rebecca Wolf, whose pronouns are she, her. She is a freelance writer, column writer for Romper. The column is titled Sex and the Single Mom. And she is the author of the new memoir, All of This. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. We're so happy to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. We kind of like met each other in in a peripheral way in my work Mm -hmm. in the poetry world um, at a great nonprofit in LA called Get Lit that you were also like involved in. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've just sort of been like following you and your story and your family since then. And it's just so great to actually collaborate in a professional way and also like on a personal level say like, hey, how's it going? (laughs) And how are you? (laughs) I know. It's so, I'm no, I'm honored and I've been such a fan of yours for so many years too. And it's just fun to reconnect like this. Yeah, definitely. Um, Thanks. I'm so thrilled, like, to talk to you in general and specifically about your new book, um, All of This. It's a memoir. And honestly, before we dive into that phenomenal piece of literature, um, I thought it'd be prudent to just, like, fill in our listeners who might not be familiar with you as an entity or as your work um, or your background, mm-hmm. if you could just tell us a little bit about your like personal or professional route to getting here, how you got started as a writer, et cetera, whatever you want to share with us that paints a picture of you. Totally. Well, one of the reasons I got involved with the Get Lit was because I was a teen poet too. Mm-hmm. And I had my, my, in high school, I had submitted a story to the hit 90s book series, Chicken Soup for the Teenage Soul. Rebecca, I have to tell you, I didn't know that about you, but I read it on your bio today and I was starstruck. Like the 14 year old in me was like, holy shit. Absolutely. (laughs) So that's why I'm bringing it up because also it's so funny because for years I was like, 
embarrassed because I wanted to be taken seriously as like a, like a literary person. And Mm -hmm. now I'm like so proud that that's how I got started because it was really amazing. I mean, I, I submitted a story in high school because my teacher was like, if you submit something to a publication, you get extra credit for it. My, yeah. my story was accepted in the second teen series, Chicken Soup for the Teenage Soul book. And then I went on to write dozens of stories, um, poems. I guess I, I ghost wrote under like 15 different pseudonyms for the book oh series God. for what? years, years. And what? then I didn't, even, <laughs> I didn't even go to college. I went straight to work as an editor of the book. And what? Wrote for, wrote and toured um, as a chicken soup contributor, the lead contributor, like my name's on the cover, um, for years. So I, I went, you know, I, I didn't go to, my, my college experience was driving to Pacific Palisades where my boss worked and writing and editing and ghostwriting for two years for that book series. So yeah, that so I, wild. I, yeah, so that was my whole thing. Um, I am so impressed. And also yeah. like talk about like a divine path, like in whatever way you want to interpret that. <laughs> but like, you know, I think about poetry that, um, you know, I didn't go to school for poetry and it just sort of, it took me somewhere, you know, if I followed yeah. the, I felt I followed the current of it and you definitely did that. Um, also, it makes me so nostalgic for those books. You're going to have to like send me a highlighted version version of which stories you wrote. <laughs> totally. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, I, I wrote under like, there was a, I wrote under, under a, a male pseudonym. It was, he was Derek Whittier Ooh. and I would get, lo- I would get love letters from all of these girls who were like, Derek, you're the most sensitive boy. And I was oh like, God. <laughs> got some news for you. That is yeah, yeah, so good. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. So, so that was, yeah. So that's where, I, so I started writing professionally really in my teens and then went straight to work. Um, and, and was really lucky that I always was able to get, you know, freelance work since. And I, I lived in London for a year. I wrote for a magazine there. Um, I did some music journalism for a minute. I kind of dabbled in all kinds of writing. And then while I was sort of freelancing and doing odd jobs, I got pregnant unexpectedly with my son at 23. And I started, blogging about that experience because I was a young mom in LA. It was anomalous. Yeah. I didn't have peers. I didn't know anybody who had children like at, at, at all. No yeah. one was even anywhere near having kids. And so I started a blog called Girls Gone Child um, in 2005. Cute, right? I always love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great name. <laughs> when my son was born, who's now 17, it's like, it's wild because it's yeah. like now I'm, I've raised an adult almost. So it's yeah. like the trajectory mm-hmm. of my of my sort of the, the, the rise of and fall. Cause it, it's no longer in service of my blog was, you know, it, it's it traces the steps of my son becoming a, an mm-hmm. adult. So mm-hmm. my blog is almost ready to vote like that. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. I started it 18 years ago. Yeah. And sure. it was, it was in the beginning stages of blogging as an entity, right? Like you were one of the oh. pioneers for sure. Yes. Yeah. So there, it was like, I was one of the original mommy bloggers is what they called us. Uh-huh. And, you know, when I started that blog, it was not to monetize it. It was just basically, you know, the, the, the blogging world in the early to mid aughts was, was still very punk rock. It was kind of yeah. like, you know, it was like, we did it. We, we did our own HTML. We didn't, you know, if we, <laughs> when we finally started selling ads, we were doing it like through this, like very sort of DIY approach. Like it was, it was a community of like-minded 
um, new mothers who also didn't really feel like they had a community in real life and sort right. of created one online. And mm. I, you know, I, yeah, I, I, my, my blog, I, I, I had a, a, got a book deal a few years after my blog, I started my blog and I wrote my first memoir, which was published in 2008, which, you know, was a little young to be writing a memoir um, <laughs> in retrospect, which is why it took me 15 years to write another one. Yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah. I don't have what I, I'm not. Yeah, what re- stories do I have? Yeah. I right. don't have the perspective yet. So that, um, mm. so, so that, so I, you know, I wrote for years on Girls Gone Child. I, I contributed to, I mean, dozens of other places. I had a column on Babbel. I had a column on mom.me. I consulted for various companies. I was very much like, you know, in involved in the mother writer world online. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and I, I stopped blogging sort of when everyone else did, when it became, you know, everything kind of went to social media and, mm-hmm. and TikTok and Instagram and Pinterest and all these other ways people were, were getting their content and it was, un, I was unable to sustain it like financially yeah. anymore. And, mm-hmm. um, so, so yeah, that's a little bit about my history, but I've been writing, I mean, I've been writing about my life pretty explicitly since I was 15. So yeah. 41 now it's been, you know, big chunk of my life. I've been, I've been writing about it. So I yeah. think, you know, sort of prefacing this book, which is, as you know, extremely personal, mm-hmm. um, yeah you know, I think I, I sort of, I, I was working up to this point all along. And I, I think, I don't think I could have written a book this personal if I hadn't been writing personally for, you know, 20 yeah. something years. So vulnerability sure. is a muscle for sure. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. And also like trusting an audience, you mm. know, and, and having being feeling like you can trust an audience. I feel really lucky that, you know, the internet can be, as you know, mm-hmm biting and tumultuous and people can (laughs) be terrifying, but I've been so lucky because I've been doing anything for so long to have created a community of people that have been really supportive. Yeah. So even when you do get that, you know, Mm -hmm. you still, you have like your core people and, and that I think makes a huge difference. So yeah, absolutely. For sure. For sure. Well, can you tell us about the book, uh, your most recent one, all of this? Yes. So my book, all of this is, uh, the story of my experience navigating my husband's death. Um, he was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer two days before he turned 44. We had just, we had, we had for years been miserable. I mean, really Mm -hmm. our whole marriage was, um, complicated. We Mm -hmm. got married, barely knowing each other. I was pregnant, you know, we sort of went in and out of being happy and miserable from the beginning. But the last few years especially were really bad, really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I was, I desperate to get out of my marriage, felt very trapped within it. You know, we had four kids financially. I didn't know how we were going to split up. I kept trying to figure out ways and then I would go back and say, okay, well, when, when, you know, they go to college yeah, well, mm. and I was like counting down the days and they went to college, but my littlest were like, you know, five. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like around the corner, but I was like, yeah. okay, just 14 more years, just 13 yeah. more years. <laughs> um, and finally, you know, I had a breaking point and I'd said to him two weeks before he was diagnosed that I wanted a divorce, that I didn't love him anymore, that I, I was not, I was, this was unsustainable for me and that I wouldn't, I could not survive. Like I was, I was so, I was 
very much done. And I, I, I couldn't justify staying anymore. Um, Mm. so we had finally had that conversation or I had finally, you know, had that conversation and, you know, we, we weren't speaking at all when he was, um, diagnosed. In fact, when he, you know, we were in such a bad place that when he had said to me, my stomach is really hurting, I need to go to the hospital. I was like, well, call a fucking Uber. Like I, I was so disconnected and, and had no empathy for him at the end, um, of our, you know, of our, you know, as soon as I finally got the words out to tell him I didn't love him anymore, it was like, Done. that was, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and also I didn't take him seriously cause he had for years, there was always something wrong and he was always dying and it was always, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I think as a wife and as a person, just in general, you know, I'm very much like, I want to take care of everyone. I want to take care of everyone. And it got to a point where I was like, you figure it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want mm-hmm. like you anyway. So he, he did, he Ubered to the hospital where he found out that he was dying. Essentially. He called me, um, in the middle of the night and he said, they just diagnosed me with stage four pancreatic cancer. It's metastasized into my liver already. It's, it's all over my body and I'm dying. Um, mm. and you know, from that point forward, I like obviously shelved everything. Well, try shelved, shelved all the <laughs> feelings that I was having, which were, sure. you know, strong disdain for him and a want out. And I was, and I, I showed up and I was with him through his dying and his death and I took care of him. And I was arguably a better wife through his death than I was mm. through his life. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I knew that this was it, that mm-hmm. I knew that he was, that our, that this was going to be the end of our marriage. And, and obviously, you know, one wants closure and you want to, you want to be able to find the humanity in each other at the end. Um, mm-hmm. but also, you know, it was really hard. It was, it was hard to put everyone first, him, my kids, you know, I was, I, my concern obviously was for him making sure he was as comfortable as possible, making sure my kids were as comfortable as possible and just navigating his death as a mother and a wife first. And I kind of, you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't until after he died that I really was able. And and after my kids, it was like, are my kids okay? Okay. I spent the first year basically making sure my kids were okay and being like, mm-hmm. you know, as, as there for them as possible. And then you know, in the it sort of, as time went on, I started to really grapple with my feelings and, yeah. and, um, what my experience was. And, you know, people, a lot of people didn't know that we were, well, the, the people who were closest to me knew, but the people who weren't, which, you know, I have a, an audience on the internet and I talk about my family and, a lot of people didn't realize that we were struggling. And yeah. so, you know, mm-hmm. people reach out and they're so sorry. And, and I, and I can't imagine what you're going through and, and, and I can't, you know, all the things that people say when a spouse dies and, you know, you hear that over and over and over and you're feeling, you're not feeling quite that way. And I got to a point where I was like, yo, <laughs> yes, this is, ter- this is a terrible thing that happened. I wouldn't want him to, you know, I didn't obviously didn't want him to die. I wa- didn't want my children to lose their father, but mm. honestly, I didn't want to be with him anymore. And now I'm not. And I need to talk about that because that's a very real, very valid feeling that I'm having. And Mm. it felt false to sort of 
perform this, you know, to respond with like, oh, you know, thank you. It, like I, I was feeling many things at once. Yes. And I, and I think, you know, there, we don't, we don't hold space for the many things at once. Once is, yes. we don't hold space for the many things. <laughs> and I was getting like, people were sending me books and books and books, grief books about widows. And, and, and I was re I was like, this is not me. Like, this is mm -hmm. not my experience. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not grieving him in that way. I'm, I'm having a very different grief response than a lot of these stories. And I started, you know, kind of hinting at it online and it was like this deluge of women reaching out to me, widows, mm. caretakers, people who had complicated relationships with parents, um, mm. who were like, this is how I'm feeling. Like I'm feeling mm. this way, but I can't even, I can't even admit it to myself, let alone say it out loud. Mm -hmm. Um, so it just became like more and more urgent. I felt just to, to, to have this conversation, which is that when somebody dies that we have a complicated relationship with, it doesn't just look this way yeah. and it mm -hmm. shouldn't just look this way. And it's completely mm -hmm. valid for it to look all these different yeah. ways. I mean, I had like this sort of coming out party after he died with myself where I was like, I I'm free for the, fr mm -hmm. you know, I got married at 23. I was 37 when he died. Suddenly I was on my own and all these things that I wanted to do, I, I got to do, and I wanted to do them kind of immediately. Mm -hmm. I was like, mm -hmm. you know, similarly to women who are just out of divorces who are like, ah, oh, like that's kind of how I felt. It just was a yeah. death. So it was like, yeah, you know, the, the, there's no archetype for like the slutty widow. There's no examples <laughs> sure, yeah. anywhere yeah. of That's a woman real. who's just, her husband's just died. And she's like, let's like, I want to fuck like what's yeah. going on. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't exist anywhere. Like it's yeah. actually, and you know, the stories that we hear about widows are women who like are, you know, it's like you're collapsed into yourself. Your friends have to pull you out of bed to get you out of the house. Like it's time to get back out there. And that was not my experience at all. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you go through an experience where there's no models, where mm -hmm. you have no examples of anyone who's, who, who's sharing your experience, it's extremely lonely. Yeah. And also as somebody who writes about her truth, I was like, I got to Like, I have to write about this. Like, this yeah. is what I, this is, I can't not, um, so that's a little background on, yeah. on my <laughs> No, that's right. perfect. I, I, honestly, <laughs> I cannot stress to our audience like how, like you just touched on so much of what you cover in your book, but how eloquently you unfold this all and with like great care and nuance. And I was, I, I, I think I was so struck by a lot of things in the book because they were so boldly comfortable or uncomfortable in the discomfort, right? Like, like you mentioned this idea that we make things black and white. And we talk about that on our show a lot because we're talking about people who have unresolved heartache or they don't know, they can't, they're, they're trying, struggling to humanize their abuser or whatever. And something you describe so eloquently in the book is like this complex nature um, of grief, especially in your experience where you miss someone, you're sad that they're gone. And also you are relieved that they're gone and you, and you don't miss them, you know, and that reading about it, one, I just like really appreciate on our show. We try so much to like 
get into the nuance, to, to, to lean into those uncomfortable truths of humanity, you know, like for example, that a widow could want to go off and get fucked, you know, (laughs) instead of like collapsing afterwards. And, um, you know, how you described the complex nature of your relationship and of grief, it made me think of like deaths that I have been privy to, you know, a suffering that I wanted to end and then was relieved that it was over. Um, It made me think of relationships that I have been in where they were so toxic that like I couldn't see my way out of them until I was beyond them, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think your book really calls out that cultural urge to see things as black and white and our general resistance to that nuance. Um, You know, you often wrote like, we were in love and we hated each other. Like I I did love him at once and I wanted to leave him. And I think like, I think even I, someone who was so open and compassionate to your story, you know, we feel that like cultural resistance because we mm. don't have the examples that you're talking about. We don't have an example. Um, we don't have many examples in mm. our culture of of the duplicity of that thing. And the thing that um, automatically comes to my mind is like how we say that, oh, that that person can't be emotionally abusive. They're so charismatic. You know, they're so friendly. They can't be abusive, you know. Um, Mm. And I know you know that all, um, but did you find yourself like struggling with this? Have you found yourself struggling with this in life and in the writing of this book? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, the the, the duality and the nuance. And I I think maybe like specifically at this time in history where we really don't know how to, how to articulate that and Mm -hmm. what to even do with it. I think it's so, we're so used to picking sides or picking teams or picking, like picking through our emotions and sort of favoring the one that, you know, we feel like societally we're supposed to feel after something happens. And Mm -hmm. I don't even think, I think so many of us don't even know how we feel anymore or what we think anymore. Cause we're constantly looking to see how everyone else is feeling and thinking first. And, you know, I think that has sort of been through writing this book, I wanted to sort of understand my feelings as they related to me and not to everyone mm-hmm. else. Like I, right. I it was, and, and I think writing long form after writing, you know, I was been writing on the internet for so many years and it's like instant. Like I write what mm-hmm. happened today and publish it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. when you're publishing in real time, you know, you don't have a lot of time to really sit with how you're feeling and really go deeper and deeper and deeper into those feelings. And I think writing this book, you know, I would write something and then I would sit and like, is that really how I feel? Am I writing this because I know that people are going to say, oh, mm. or am I writing this because this is true? And I think it's very easy when you're used to spinning a story to spin the story that everyone wants to hear. It's so right. fucking easy. Mm-hmm. Like I know mm-hmm. what to write. Widow. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Like mm-hmm. you, and, and it's like, and you get love from everyone. It's like very tempting to be that person that you're supposed to be because everyone loves sure. her. Yeah. And when you start to question her and, and, and sort of, you know, undress her and realize that like, actually this is, this is, this is literally a, this is an avatar of a widow. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This is a caricature of a widow. This is not yeah. my true experience as one. Um, and I think for me, you know, I, I dedicated my book to myself and I did that because it was, I realized as I was writing it, like, who am I writing this for? Mm -hmm. Like, who is my audience? And my audience isn't just me, but my audience is 
women or people who feel like, like, fuck, I'm going to put myself first for once. Like I'm going to, this is going to be for me. Like, can I do that? Is that like, is that okay? And I, and I felt, you know, I had to make that choice in writing this book, you know, that I was doing, I was writing a book that I felt like I needed to write and I was going to be judged for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we don't know what to do with, you know, this is not what, what we're a story that we're used to hearing. Um, but I also like, it was very empowering to sort of stand alone, you know, and say, okay, I'm doing this. All right. Mm -hmm. Fuck it. Like I'm, I'm in. Um, and you know, I, I'm really, I'm really proud of the book I wrote. I feel like I wrote it lovingly to, you did. I, I I don't Mm -hmm. feel like there was rightly. Thank you. Yeah. I wrote it lovingly to myself, but I also felt like I wrote it lovingly to Hal Mm -hmm. because he was complicated, but and these things did happen, but he was also a person and there was love there. And, and I think that's what people are, people really struggle with. They don't, they think that, um, I think death you know, does that too, right? We want to memorialize someone as this perfect being. We even want to memorialize death as this like clean, neat totally. thing because yes. we don't know how to actually sit with like the discomfort that we're, we're all going to like die one day, <laughs> which leads mm-hmm. Me yeah. great to to, yeah. to Sam's to Sam's next question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'll just say too, I uh my dad passed away sort of unexpectedly and near the end had a very sort of fraught and harmful relationship with the rest of us. Um oh, wow. and one of the main emotions that I felt when he died was also relief, right? This mm-hmm. idea of like, you know, I didn't know how I was gonna keep my mom safe. I didn't know how I was going mm-hmm. to take care of him in his illness. And then he died and I was like, that's stuff I don't have to worry about anymore. Mm-hmm, um, right. And it was, people approached me with these beautiful, lovely stories about how wonderful my father was. And I was like, he wasn't at the end there though. Yeah. So like, right. And this like really intense need to sort of push back and say like, that's your experience of him. That was not mine. And like, I'm, I'm glad you're sad that he's dead, but like right now I'm just angry and relieved. So I don't mm. know what, what you want from me. Um, so I felt a lot of that in, in your book too. And I, and I want to just echo what Sierra said. I think that you did a wonderful job of telling the story of Hal in a way that was loving, right? Like, Thank you. you know, it wasn't that he was this dick that did all of these awful things to you and he had no redeeming qualities. It was that exactly what you said, that he was complicated and hurt and troubled and in a situation that wasn't great for him either. And like all Mm -hmm. of that. So I just, uh, want to say that I really appreciated you, you finding a way to say that in a way that I think honored him for who he was, which was a complicated person. Thank you. And I also felt, you know, a lot of the reason why I kind of dug into my own stuff, right. Cause I talk about cheating on him and I, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I also feel like when you're telling the story, when you're talking about someone's complicated self, I think that it's really important to also acknowledge your own complicated self. Right. And sure. I think, um, this is like, this is the way I parent. This is the way I relationship just in general. I think this, you know, I think that when you humanize everybody in the room, you can humanize everyone in the room. Right. And I think right. that the, when you start to pick on people or draw attention to people without acknowledging your own shit, that was, that was really important for me in this book was to, was to humanize both of us. Um, yeah. and it's interesting because 
the responses, which I feel like, oh, I did my job right. People, everyone judges me. They don't judge him. No one mm. has come to <laughs> or, or reviewed sure. the book or said anything where nobody has judged him. Damn. Um, you know what? I did read some of the reviews on Goodread and I remember seeing people commenting on your like honest, uh, description of infidelity which we talk about and humanize all the time on our show because yeah. it is a part of life and it is a yeah. part of you know whatever and it is a, it's an expression of a need in one way or another and um i remember reading the reviews and being like mm, i see i see why people are are feel resistant to it but also yeah. like this is what i want to read this is i don't want to yeah. read a perfect <laughs> a manual that doesn't align with anyone's lived experience Totally. Right. And it's, but right. it's interesting because the, the judgment is reserved for me, which means as a writer, I did my job right because I, you know, mm. it's like you, you judge, people can judge me, but they're not judging him, which, which means I, I didn't either. Right. Mm. Like if I was writing mm. a book that was judgmental mm-hmm. of who mm-hmm. he was, of him, of whatever. Um, so I actually like, I feel like that I mean, I knew that was coming. I, I, I mean, I, I'm a person in the world and I've been writing on the internet for long enough and been criticized right. for everything <laughs> forever. So I, sure. criticism is like part of it. But that was really interesting to me. It was like, people were pretty much like, I'm the one, I'm the, you know, I, they're, they're villainizing me and not him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which is a problem, which is a, its own problem because yeah. we villainize stories <laughs> right. of people, you know, we villainize truth, right? Which is why we're all lying all the time. Everyone's lying all day long, lies, lies, lies. And we, mm-hmm. we, ha- we talk a big talk about tell your truth and be in your power and be in your truth. But the truth, is, the truth is nobody fucking wants anyone telling anyone's truth. Because we it's uncomfortable. We're, yeah. Totally. Right. And see, and we, and secrecy, we assume that secrecy is protective, mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. we protect our families, that we protect our children, that we protect our jobs by being secretive and that our truths are going to derail everything. Um, and like, it's just, you know, that's, that's <laughs> when, when you, when you have a society built on, on shaming those who are willing to tell complicated truths, like what the, like we're doomed we can't, because we're just walking around lying to yeah. each other. Like nothing's, you know, nothing's even, we don't even know what's real anymore. We don't even know how we feel anymore because we don't even allow ourselves to, to like, think about what, you know, who we are and how we feel and what our mm-hmm. truths are, because there's just so much shame. I mean, yeah. everyone, the, 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 the thing that I keep hearing over and over is like, oh my God, you're so brave. But like, why, why does it have to be brave to just tell a very universal story? This is not mm. like anomalous, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I, I, nothing that's happened to me is like, wow, this is the first time this has happened. This is happening every day all over the world. It's, it shouldn't have to be brave. Mm. Um, and I think that sort of like, I'm coming out of like, my book came out two weeks ago and I'm sort of, that's what's been on my mind. It's like, how do we, how do we tell, how do we get to a point where telling our stories isn't, isn't brave anymore? Yeah. Like, is that possible? Like, are we, mm. is, you know, because this is, this is, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't know if that was like a hypothetical <laughs> question, but I think, I think that there, I'll answer it. <laughs> I think Love that it. there will always be storytellers 
and then people who experience the stories or experience them themselves mm. in the stories. But I do agree with you that there's something, there's sort of like a cog in the wheel sort of mm. thing about a celebrating people's vulnerability and then not, and still not normalizing it, still not freeing ourselves. You know, it's like it, I don't know if we can get to that place. Mm-hmm. I don't know if to, uh, to my first point, I don't know if storytelling is for everyone. And by storytelling, I yeah. mean like truth telling, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's for, you know, like in advocacy, I think that everybody has different roles or activism, you know, everybody has a different role. Um, I don't know. I'm getting a little tangential now. So no, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I also want to say that there are, are literally thousands of like very positive, glowing reviews of Rebecca's book online. Oh, I just no, remember no. reading Everyone's a couple <laughs> that no. talked about cheating at being like a really tur- a big turnoff. And I was like, this is going to be the turnoff in a, in a book about a fucking complicated, painful relationship and somebody moving through a horrible thing that happened to them. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, that's anyway. what's so interesting because, because monogamy and fidelity and all these things are so like for some people that the worst thing you could possibly do is cheat on somebody like, or the, it's the, I mean, I, I mean, yes. So, so I think, you know, there's some people are just hardwired for that to be like, absolutely not. And there's no nuance to that. Yeah. Yeah. You cheated. And that's, We we like to say on the show, not all journeys can be mine. And (laughs) so so that is both for the ideology of cheating and cheating itself. (laughs) 100%. All right, y'all know that Sam and I record every single episode of Just Break Up virtually. So I literally see this beautiful person on Zoom like multiple times a week. And every time Sam pops up into Zoom, I comment on their outfit. And I swear, like 99% of the time, I'm like, oh my God, that outfit is so cute. Where did you get it? Sam says quince. You too can upgrade your wardrobe with luxury essentials at unbeatable prices. Quince is here to transform the way you shop with a range of high quality items priced within reach. That's right. They have 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters for $50, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, and timeless 14 karakal jewelry. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middle person and passes that saving on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Y'all have heard me talk about my leather bag that I use as both a laptop bag and a diaper bag. And I love it because (laughs) (laughs) honestly, it looks really cute in every single circumstance that I use it. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash just break up for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash just break up to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash just break up. All right, head and heart workers, you know, I'm all about tackling our money shame and becoming fiscally empowered, regardless of how much money we make or how much debt we have. I think it's such a crucial step in our own self-acceptance and empowerment. 
That's why I love that today's episode is sponsored by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. With Rocket Money, you can see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you see something you don't want, you can just cancel it with a tap. You never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled unwanted subscriptions. And listen, we always talk to you about like conflict styles and open and honest communications, but honestly, save your energy and get Rocket Money to cancel those subscriptions for you. <laughs> Stop wasting yeah. you money. You don't need to practice that. Yeah. We don't need to do head and heart work with like customer service representatives. You know what I mean? Like just like... Use the middle person. <laughs> Just get Rocket Money in there to help you do what you need to do. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. That's rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. Rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. Can I read a quote from your book that made me, I was brushing my teeth when I was listening to it and I had to like put the toothbrush down to start like typing out what I was listening to. Oh my gosh, um, i just ask you about it. Awesome. Um, so one of the things that you talk about, you say, death was so central to our lives now. You're talking about you and your kids. Mm -hmm. um, and then you said, there, there was nothing I could do for Hal, which woke me, woke me up to the realization that there was nothing I could do for my children either. Um, and it just like hit me. Um, again, cause I got, as somebody who lost his, his dad, um, that feeling of like, wow, there was nothing I could do to keep this from happening to him. Like it was so outside of my control. Mm. And now I'm looking at all these loved ones around me and thinking, oh my God, there's nothing I can do to save them either. And I just yeah. wonder how you sort of sit in that realization, mm. that like big, important, profound realization without feeling like nihilistic or like yeah. without sort of being weighed down by the knowledge of that. So I actually, I have like a, I really truly feel that the fact that we're all going to die is like, I, that feels very hopeful to me. It sort of even, it, it equalizes everything. When you know that this is when we, when you know, everything is finite, mm -hmm. when you know that you're here for now. Um, I mean, I think I've always been like, maybe even to a fault, like really good at living in the moment, but even mm -hmm. more so now. And I think you know, we talk, we have these conversations about death in our house. We talk about, you know, we, we might, one of my daughters is, has a lot of fear that I'm going to die. I mean, this has mm -hmm. been, you know, almost sure. every night she wants to go over the plan if I die. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and it's not, it, you know, I know it comes from a place of, of trauma, right? Cause she's lost a parent and she knows it's very possible to lose another one, but it's yep. also like having the conversation and talking about it and not like holding that in. We're all, we all have fear of death, but when you feel like you can openly talk about it in your house and you're like, okay, mm -hmm. well, if you die, this is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And this is what's, you know, like you can be, you can talk about death in a way that isn't, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be, it is, it shouldn't be pessimistic. It's because freeing. It's, yeah. Right. We're, it's, yeah. it's a relief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like we, you know, we talk about our funerals all the time. We talk about like, oh my God, put that on my headstone when I die. This is how I want For to sure. be buried. Like it's, 
so much of our lives is about death now. Like we have parties at the funeral. I mean, at the funeral, we have parties at the cemetery, you know, on father's day, we call, you know, on, on the dead dad's day, which is the, the day of his death, the universe death, we call Same it dead dad day. To that. Mm-hmm. And we do like parties <laughs> and, you know, we talk about him as a person and the things we loved about him and the things that like, we're so glad we don't have to fucking deal with, which is what I want too. And I hope like, I don't want my kids to, you know, when I die, I'm like, you know, they're all going to be like, oh, fucking mom. Like she was such a pain in the ass. Like <laughs> I, I want them to hold space for all the different versions of me too. Like that's, that's love, right? Sure. Like yeah, love sure. is, 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 is like knowing somebody and, yes. and, and mm-hmm. totally, but I think like, you know, I, I personally think of myself as sort of an optimistic nihilist because everything is going to end and mm-hmm. we are all going to die and, and preparing for loss isn't negative. We're not anticipating yeah. something terrible to happen. We're anticipating life to be for as sure. it is, which is life. So I think, you know, if you like knowing that it's temp- all temporary, you know, yeah. th- for, mm-hmm. for better and for worse, like, thank God it's temporary. This is very on brand for just break up. We, we yeah, regularly absolutely. talk about things uh, being, you know, the universe will devastate you regardless of how you prepare or don't prepare for it to devastate you. It's comforting. Sure. Honestly, it's comforting to think mm-hmm. that way. I mean, when we go to sleep at night, that's practicing for death, right? Like we wake mm. up and we get to start a new, you know, it's like we, that it's over. The day is fucking over. Mm. And a lot of the times you don't want the day to end. And a lot of times you're like, thank fucking God this day is over. <laughs> and I think yeah. that's, I think, you know, it's, that's sort of how I feel about life. I feel like there are going to be things about my life that I'm not going to miss when it's over. Um, right. And there, and there are going to be things that I do. And I think like, it's okay to have those feelings. I mean, I remember when Hal was dying, he was so, that was his whole thing. He was like, now I don't have to deal with taxes. Now it's on you. Like you have to deal with it. And he had said to my friend, she came over and he's like, she's like, how are you feeling? He's like, I can't wait to take off this heavy backpack and to give it to Rebecca. I was like, Okay, because it's like, both poetic and spiteful. Like oh, I don't really? know how I feel about it. And totally. No, it was. But <laughs> yeah, that was exactly. That was like his vibe at the end. He was like, "Well, fine, you're gonna live. Like you take this. You take this off my hands." Yeah. And it was so funny because I was like, "Take what off your hands?" Like I, like, okay, so now I have to do the taxes. Like I have to like. What What do you think I've been doing? Yeah. I'm, yeah. I've been carrying around this backpack. I don't even think about taking it off. Like it just, Mm -hmm. Uh but, but you know, there was that moment where he was kind of having this like, well, I don't have to deal with it anymore. Like, fuck Mm -hmm. it. Like I'm going to die. So now it's on you. Um, and I think that is real. And I think, you know, having some levity when it comes to this stuff, I mean, like we, we make jokes, we have like the darkest, you know, like gallows humor, um, about everything. And it just makes it, it makes it a lot easier to, to talk about, complicated, hard, scary stuff when you can laugh about it. Um, and you know, I, I, I mean, I, I like the, the, the part that you're referencing in the book, I know, I know what, where that's coming from. And I, I had, I did have this feeling very acutely and it was almost like a, an animal instinct that came in where it was like, Oh, I'm the only one left. Like I have Mm -hmm. to be, Mm -hmm. whereas before I felt like I was a little more like, ah, like I, I could do things like I'm, I, 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 you know, I look both ways like 17 times when I cross the street now. Cause I can't, sure. I can, you know, I have to be 
more careful and I, I'm more aware of more my mortality, I think, than I was before. And that's a, a big For reason sure. also why I felt so exploratory in the aftermath of his death, because I have a body. Like, mm, I don't know right? how much longer I'm going to have a body that works, that can mm-hmm. feel things, that can feel good. And when you're with someone, especially like who dies, but like he, you know, he, from diagnosis to death, it was less than four months. Like he went from mm-hmm. being an, a, a person, a healthy bodied person to, to not being able to walk within days of his diagnosis. Like that was how fast. So when you see how, how fast one can go from being a human working healthy body to not being able to move, you know, you're like, Oh shit, I, I better live mm-hmm. in my body while it still works. So I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm, why am I going to sit here, you know, for one more minute when I can go and live, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, you're, you're just with someone when their life force left their body. Mm-hmm. So I think tr- recognizing that you have one and you, and what does that look like? What does it feel right. like? How do I, how do I take advantage of it while I have it? Um, sure. you know, yeah. has been part of my journey as well. <laughs> yeah, that's real. One of the things as I was reading your book that also sort of like was a, a perspective shift for me. Um, was in the chapters after Hal's death where you sort of have this string of short relationships with people, like sometimes even like one night um, and just talking about how that was so deeply profound Mm -hmm. for you and sort of this juxtaposition between this like 15 year relationship that was like really fraught and complicated and, and unhealthy for both of you. And then like the, the sort of wonder and vulnerability and connection of meeting people and experiencing them for like short periods of time and how that again, like flips on its head, this idea that we have about relationships as being, they are worth more if they're longer. Yeah. Um, And I was just really struck by that. And I wondered if you could just like talk about, um, what that shift felt like for you, um, and and where you are in this moment too, is, is that still Mm -hmm. something that you're thinking about or experiencing? Yeah. So, I, first of all, I, I believe really strongly that we, again, like longevity, we're very much like quantity over quality when it comes to relationships. Mm -hmm. There's always sort of these things that are thrown around or people have been like, I've been married for 50 years. And it's like, we made it work. We, you know, we, we like all the different ways they're described. It's like, it's like a, you know, we, we through ups and downs, we made it happen. Like there's just, there's, it's like this, they're so proud of doing the work, which of course, and relationships are work and you should be proud of doing the work, but it's always sort of this, like the, 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 we survived this marriage. Mm -hmm. We, we made, we, we were, we stuck it out and all these different words, um, for, for sort of stay like staying. And we reward that we reward the sticking it out for the kids, staying together for the kids. Mm -hmm. We reward, people martyring themselves in order to stay in relationships that are unhealthy for them. And I think this is, it's, I don't think it's gendered, but I do think there are a lot of women who feel because they're, I, I think that, that women with children, mothers, a lot of the times are like, well, I, I don't want to do this to my children. I don't want to break up my family. Like it's my job to create a safe place. I use this analogy use this analogy a lot in like last few weeks and I'm going to use it again, but I think it's really accurate. And that 
I think mothers specifically are expected to be the harbor and not the ship. Um, and I think, you know, the idea of being the harbor is to be in one place, to be safe and mm-hmm. to sort of give, you know, just to, to, to root yourself to something and to stay there. And I, I think that means in terms of like, that, that also means relationship wise. It's like you, you pick a partner and this is your person and we're going to create mm-hmm. a safe place for, for, you know, and we're going to be here. And the idea of having shorter relationships, of being more exploratory, of connecting with people and not, and having them sort of stay on the periphery. That's not a harbor. That's not, that's not what harbors do. That's what ships do. Um, and I think for me, my experience has been like, I, how do, how can I be the harbor for my children, for my family and the ship for myself? And you know, these sort of shorter relationships that don't necessarily need to go anywhere that I don't really want them to. Um, because for me, you know, I, my domestic life is here in this home. I'm a mother here. This is what I am. And I keeping it separate to me is the only way I can maintain that. And also feel like when I leave, I leave. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So having, having these sort of shorter relationships, specifically after Hal died and having experiences where there was no pressure to be, to be anything other than what I was in that moment, um, felt like really holy. Like it felt like this really Mm. beautiful communion. Like it, it felt like me saying I can, I can be a woman who isn't a mother, who isn't a partner, who's just a woman who wants to fuck or flirt or, you know, go on a few dates and, and, and have this, this great time and then say goodbye to you. It was like a, it was sort of like getting comfortable in the discomfort of the temporary, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because everything sort of all of a sudden felt ephemeral anyway, being alive felt ephemeral, like everything did. And coming Mm -hmm. out of a relationship, you know, 14 year relationship that I was miserable in the last thing that I wanted was to be in any sort of relationship like the last, yeah, you know, sure. Sure. and, and I, you know, there was, there was obviously there was so much trauma around Hal's death, but there was far more trauma around the marriage than there was the mm. death. And I think mm. I was having this sort of like, I can't anything that's going to be, that's any, any situation that's going to lead me back there is not mm. anything that I want to even fuck with. Yeah. I want to, I want to have fun and connect with people. And I do think you can have real, like beautiful connections love filled, even connections with people that are temporary. Um, I think it's actually like really beautiful thing that we have the capacity to like intimately have intimate experiences with people and then never see them again. Like, I don't think that's, Mm. I don't think that that's a a form of detachment. I think that's a form of like, of being of, of optimistic nihilism that we can, (laughs) that we can live and then die in the same moment with somebody. Mm. Um, Yep. And I think for me, I was able to be vulnerable with people that I wasn't going to have this long relationship with because for sure. I could keep it here and I can, and I can let it go. Right. It was like mm-hmm. this, these beautiful sort of balloon moments, you know, balloon doesn't last very long. Um, but when you have the balloon, it's beautiful. And then you let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, I love that. Perfect. No, that's- <laughs> That's great. And it, I think it also like, 
to me, part of what I'm hearing too, is that like, it's about also the ability to like disappoint people too, mm. right? Like this, this sort of like space creating that you didn't have when you were with Hal, right? Like mm. you totally. stuck with it. You, and so like in little ways now, you may be mm-hmm. disappointing these people who may want more of you, but like, that's a practice. That's like a muscle that we need practice. to build to find like comfort in the discomfort of, of being a disappointment to people or of, of hurting people or not giving them as much access to us as they may want. Mm. I to- to- it is a practice. And also for the self, because I think naturally, I mean, I've had moments where I'm like, this is definitely like, I-, I know what feels right to me right now. And it's keeping everything separate. Like, mm. sure. I had a year and a half long COVID relationship with someone who never met my kids. Um, And it really worked for me. Like I, Mm -hmm. it worked for everybody. And Mm -hmm. I, I think this, I I think we have so little imagination when it comes to relationships. I think we, we assume that when you love someone or were you with someone, even for a certain amount of time, you need them to meet your family, to meet your children, to like, that you need to sort of like collapse your lives into one another. Like everything needs to overlap and mix And I think, you know, for me, I have four children. It's just me. I don't Mm -hmm. want to co-parent. I have no desire to have anyone come into my home who's in, who's in any sort of intimate relationship with me. Um, and I, I feel like it's, it's kind of this beautiful thing that I get to have something for myself. Yeah. Um, (laughs) and that, and, and that, that to me has become really valuable having my me time, having my escapes, having my experiences with other people that, that don't that don't, you know, bleed into this part of my life. Um, sure. And I've written about this before, and this is something I think a lot of, a lot of single mothers feel as well. Is this like, Mm -hmm. God, why? Like, I think a lot of, again, like, I don't want to make generalizations, but I think a lot of men are looking to get back into marriages or back into, you know, Mm. partnerships. Mm. And I think a lot of women are like, did that? Nope. Like (laughs) don't really want to do that anymore. At least not Mm -hmm. in like a heteronormative, you know, Mm -hmm, for sure. mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one thing that I I like DM'd you when I started listening to the book. Um, and I said, this book is going to free people. Um, and I think I, that's probably like the note that I want to leave our listeners with is how, um, not to say that you're brave, but that the in detailing your imperfect humanity in in letting people into this side of widowhood, in this side of wifehood, in this side of motherhood, I mean, I think you're just painting a a more broader, realistic portrait of what does it mean to be a a human going through all of this. And I think that that is, I was just talking about this with my therapist today. <laughs> that like language, you know, um, that that when people give us the language that we see ourselves in, you know, it's the mm. same thing in poetry, in memoirs, yeah. um, in in Instagram posts and blogs. Like it is so empowering to have somebody even paint a picture that you can somewhat relate to, especially if that picture is a more m- marginalized or hidden side of humanity. Um, on that, I know, like, I I know that as you started telling your, you know, your venue of followers, your your people who found you from the blog and from your column work and, and whatnot, these people who have followed your relationship for a decade plus, mm-hmm. as you started, un, 
you know, after Hal's death and you started slowly like revealing um, the true nature of the relationship, the unhappy, you know, the, the grit, you know, the, yeah. the messy part that you weren't sharing before um, you started. Um, you'll have to remind me how this all unfolded, yeah. but it involved the hashtag how I left. Can you tell our listeners a little about that? Yeah. So I, I sort of confessed to my readers that I was actively pursuing a divorce when my husband was diagnosed, which I had not, Mm -hmm. I had not talked about publicly. And I had said, Mm. you know, a lot of things that I said just now, which is that I related to women who were divorced and not widows. And those are my, that was my community after he died that I, I really started spending time with, with, with divorced women. And that is what felt accurate to me. Like that's what mm-hmm. felt closer to my experience because I did feel relieved. And, you know, I talked about wanting to leave my marriage for years and that I didn't, it was like, I didn't have divorce modeled in my home. Everyone in my family is still married. Um, there's, I didn't have friends that were divorced. Like it was, it was like a very, I was sort of isolated in like marital monogamous land, which, you know, and I didn't have, again, a lot of examples. And for me having examples relating to people is like, that's, that's what, that's my, that's what helped. That's the only thing that helps me. And that's, I think why I do the work that I do is because I understand the value of feeling less alone and, Mm -hmm. So I wrote about wanting to get out of my marriage and that, and, and that I like had seen an old picture of myself looking miserable. And I wish that I could just go back and tell her what to do. And Mm -hmm. I asked people, I reached out and I said, if you've gotten out of your, if, you know, if you've left your marriage, tell me how you did it. Cause a bunch of people are reaching out and saying me too, me too. Like I'm, I'm miserable. Me too, me too, me too, me too. So I said, guys, let me, you know, I have a lot of women who want to know how to leave their marriages and I can't answer that for them because I didn't leave mine. I was left. <laughs> right. <laughs> he beat me yeah. to the punch. Right. Um, for sure. And so it was a deluge. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I still never, I mean, there's hundreds of DMS, maybe even thousands that I've never even seen because there were so many, it was so intense. Hundreds of women were responding hundreds and hundreds with their stories of how they left of of the before and the after of what, of tips to give other, other people trying to leave their marriages. They were lawyers reaching out, willing to do pro bono work. Um, (laughs) it was, it turned into an entire like underground community and I was matching women. Like, where are you? You're, you're in Portland. Okay. I've got this person in Portland. Who's going to do pro bono work to help you get up. It was wild. I mean, I had like other people helping me, but like it was, it turned into, it was like maybe three weeks. It got to the point where I had to eventually stop because it was like, all I was doing was like trying to hook people up. And I was like, okay, the resources are here. They're in my stories. You can go find them. They're, you know, um, but for a while, even after someone would reach out and they say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get out of my marriage. This is what's happening. Do you have any a resource for me? And I would go through it. I was like, okay, I'm finding someone in Mm -hmm. your state or whatever. Um, but it was, massive. And it's so funny because now on the tail end of that, people message me all the time who were like, just wanted to let you know that my divorce just got finalized. Um, I would have never gotten a divorce or left my situation if it wasn't for the, how I left series. Um, Mm. people, people made friends through that. They found a community. I had two women reach out to me saying that they, 
decided they had read all the stories and decided it was finally time to leave their marriage. So they did it together and they moved in together. <laughs> like they were the most amazing stories. And really all, all that told me was like, all you have to do is tell the truth mm. and share it. And it's like, everyone's like, everyone starts raising their hand. You have to be the first yeah. person to raise your hand. Do you know what I mean? Like it was, sure. yeah. And yeah, that, I mean, that's probably like the proudest thing. I mean, I, I mean, I, I was a ca- like, I didn't do anything. I just posted something and everyone yeah. else did it, but yeah, it was, it was like a really incredible. I thought it was so powerful happened. just to hear like people's logistics. Oh, I packed mm-hmm. my things and I brought them to my mother's and then I, I wrote him a letter or right. we had our final argument and I, I got up and left or, or something like, you know, like hearing the logistics of it. Sometimes people, again, like we've said, like, we just don't know what we can't see, you know, or we ha- what we can't imagine for ourselves in particular. Totally. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, Rebecca, thank you for being here and for having this conversation with us. Um, it's been wonderful to talk with you. We have three questions that we ask everyone who comes on the series with us. Uh, so the first one is, is there a piece of relationship advice that you used to believe that you don't subscribe to anymore? I feel like we've, that's the whole conversation that we've been having, yeah, but yeah. is there anything specific that you wanted to call out? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think, I think the word compromise, um, I think this idea, I think compromise is important in a relationship, I think compromising your own ideals and needs, uh, is not. And Mm. I think a lot of my marriage, I was like, okay, I need to compromise. This is, I need to, to put my, put myself over here to shelf my needs and for the greater good of my relationship. And I, I don't think that compromise I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I'm like, I'm not going to compromise anymore. I'm not going to be in a relationship with someone unless I'm happy I'm not going to do anything that I don't want to do anymore because the other person wants to do it. Like I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, like having sort of autonomy, um, and, and like allowing myself to sort of put myself first instead of last in a relationship and not compromising. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably just off the top of my head, the, sure. the, the part of the, yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. That's great. All right. And every episode, we shout out a blind date that we want to set our listeners up with. with. And this week, we're going to get a blind date from you. I just recently saw Sharon Van Etten live. And yeah. it was like an, a religious experience for me. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I was like a big fan of hers before. But watching her, watching her live, like right before this book dropped, especially and like yeah. her, 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 like her power. Um, yeah. And then literally I've just been listening to like everything she's ever done for the last two weeks since my book come out. Like I play Sharon Van Etten. I like, want, so I'm, I'm going to shout out blind date Sharon Van Etten specifically go see <laughs> her it. live if you can. I love that. Perfect. Awesome. And so where can people find you and how can they support you? So, uh, my website is rebeccawolf.com. Everything is linked through there. They can also follow me on Instagram, which is at Rebecca Wolf with three O's. There's an extra O in there. Um, you can check out my column. I do a biweekly column on romper.com. It's called sex and the single mom. Um, and you can check out my book, all of this, a memoir of death and desire, which is in stores. Now you can get it in hardback yes. and Kindle on audible, yeah, Rebecca Wherever read books are sold. her own um, audiobook. It was phenomenal. Both Sam was and really I listened good. to it. Yeah. 
Um, well, thank you so much, Rebecca. I'm so thrilled to have this conversation. Uh, honestly, you've been in the back of my mind since we started our interview series. Um, and then when I saw your book was coming out, I was just so thrilled with the kismet timing of this all. Um, I cannot stress, uh, well, first, so thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having <laughs> and, me. And please, to our Just Break Up listeners, go check out the book. Um, it is it's such a unique and profound um, memoir. Really, you knocked it out of the park. And I hope you are very proud of yourself. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to stay tuned for more Head & Heart Work conversations on our primary feed every other week. And if all else fails, just break up. <laughs>